Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 34, The Apple. By the will of Val, you are listening to Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Val, by the way, he makes the ears here in the pods pod. We like Val. Each week we take a look at the, uh, we go into the belly of the beast, especially if that beast is thousands of years old and a machine or a god or who knows, maybe both, and find out what makes Star Trek tick. We're looking for the morals, the messages, the meanings, and we are sure glad to have you along for the ride. This week, we take a big, tasty bite of forbidden fruit. Going into the mission log, it's the apple. And by the way, if you're only listening to us and not watching us, although I don't know how you would watch us, um, Ken, in honor of this episode, is uh, wearing a white wig and orange spray tan. <laughs> yeah, I've got the very strange sort of Oompa Loompa Elvis going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah they, they did. It was a very large uh, headset of hair. It was a pompadour. It was a gigantic pompadour. If you've seen Rockadoodle. Right. <laughs> right. Then you have a little bit of an idea of what the people of Vol look like. People of Vol, mm-hmm. by the way. You know, Vol makes the sun shine. He makes the bees bee. <laughs> and, and he makes the pods pod, apparently. He makes the pods pod. Yeah, he puts the fruit on the trees and the rain in the sky and the... He causes the rocks to explode for whatever reason. Yeah, that's that's good thinking. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we get into our deep and meaningful discussion of the apple, Ken, I'm I'm chomping at the bit here, or champing at the bit, depending on how you uh, want to phrase that, to drop a little trivia on you. Okay. Hey, you know, lay that lay that soul down, brother. Here we go. All right. Well, the first thing I have to mention, um, we'll, we'll get to Seoul. We'll get to Seoul. Right. Uh, the first thing I have to mention is that uh, this is the first indication in Star Trek that the Enterprise can can kind of come apart in space. It, it can drop its nacelles. You can yeah. whip around the rest of the Enterprise just with its uh, impulse engines. That's kind of cool. Now, apparently, they were planning to actually show a separation in this episode, but uh, just couldn't afford it. You know, the model was not built that way. Um, so we had to wait, of course, until next gen to be able to see an Enterprise come apart. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's kind of cool that, that they had planned that out, you know, that idea that the Enterprise would have that ability. It was interesting to hear it said. I'm wondering mm-hmm. why in, um, in later, like in the movies, mm-hmm. why they didn't do that. Mm, right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, when, you well, know, when they could, yeah. you know, yeah. that might have been a good way to get away from Khan or a good way to get away from the uh, Klingons in Star Trek three. Oh, good idea. You know, some, idea. I mean, there might have been there might have been some way if you can take the ship apart without destroying the ship. Maybe try that. You know, like, right. they, like, like they do in next gen, as you say, although they actually end up destroying the ship in next gen as well. Um, I, I want to mention uh, a couple of uh, actors here who mm-hmm. are yeah, starring in this episode. First of all, Keith Andes, who plays Akuta in this. He's sort of the lead of the people of Vol. Now, um, 
uh, like we said, everybody's covered up in the orange spray tan and the giant white wig. And he, he's got this, he's got great presence and he's got this kind of like Peter Graves voice almost. And, and at first I had this flash of, wait, that's not Peter Graves. No, no, no. It's Keith Andes, um, who had actually a pretty full career um, in Hollywood. And uh, he actually co-starred with Marilyn Monroe in a movie called Clash by Night. And mm. uh, he was also in the movie Tora, Tora, Tora. And... In uh, the late 70s, he was a guest star in an episode of Buck Rogers, the one with uh, Gil Gerard. Yeah, so. I can't believe. I mean, it, that's nice. That's great. But you are holding up either you know, Starsky and or Hutch. Okay. All right. <laughs> so David Soul, he, he is a lesser of the people of Val. We don't get as much out of him, although he does a, a nice <laughs> job smashing somebody's head with a giant uh, uh, stick in yeah. this episode. Yeah, but yes, um, he uh, David Soul went on, of course, to uh, star in Starsky and Hutch, and yes. uh, where he just played so you know, Starsky. He was Hutch. Oh, he was Hutch. Okay, he was Hutch. I was going to say, I knew he was either Starsky or Hutch, uh, or or both. I depending knew, on uh, what you call him. Yeah. I knew he wasn't Huggy Bear. No, no, he, he definitely was not Huggy Bear. Yeah, he was also a part-time singer. Uh, yes, yes. He had uh, a couple of number one uh, songs back in the mid to late 70s. <laughs> and, uh, and if you catch Ken on the right day, he will sing them both for you. KTL proudly presents. <laughs> Don't get you know, on this, baby. My eight-track player, uh, eight player is broken, so I'm glad that I have you. <laughs> um, also want to mention uh, Celeste Yarnell. She is the female guest star and that's playing Martha Landon, Lieutenant Martha Landon, who has a little bit of uh, a romance with Chekhov. And um, she had a, a bit of a story that she tells every now and then at conventions and interviews and stuff uh, that she says that during that episode, she actually had a, uh, uh, a nail infection, like a nail fungus thing going on. So there's that scene where she and Chekhov kiss. And she said it was very awkward because she's trying to hide throughout the episode. She's trying to hide the hand that, that has the problem with it. And she said that uh, during that kiss scene with, um, uh, with Chekhov, Walter Koenig, she sort of gave the impression to Walter Koenig that she was just not into him and not into the scene because she, it was very awkward for her. She kept kind of manipulating the way that her hands were going to be seen on screen. So just a little behind-the-scenes tidbit. That completely kills any interest I had in Landon now. Re because she's got a nail infection? No, I think because you told me. Because, I, I mean, <laughs> I've watched the episode a few times. I didn't pick up on yeah. that. But now I'm not going to be able to see anything but that. You, you, well, yeah, yeah, you, exactly. Awesome, thanks. That's all you'll be thinking about. Thanks, that's really, that's, that's really wonderful. Okay. Uh, finally, here's a cool little bit of trivia. Um, Ken, I don't know about you, but I, I may have had one or two Star Trek toys growing up when mm -hmm. I was a kid. Yep. Uh, I may have some now. <laughs> I'm not going to reveal for sure. Um, but there's one toy, there's one Star Trek toy that is kind of like the holy grail of the mid-70s Mego line of action figures and play sets and all that stuff. Um, they made a play set called the Mission to Gamma 6 play set. And it was kind of like a, you know, vaguely based on Vol from this episode. You have kind of a, a rock uh, edifice and then you've got a, a lizard-like uh, mouth opening in the middle and it comes with all these little action figures that are definitely not the people of all um, but it's got a little it's, it's some really interesting stuff it is actually shown on the box it is actually a star trek toy and it is shown with uh the kirk and spock action figures sold separately 
And uh, there's a little glove that you can put your hand through to, to be like an arm of Vol, where you can grab Spock or grab Kirk and just toss him into Vol's open mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you turn it around, and there's like a pit in this thing where um, you actually see the underbelly of Vol. Oh, and his eyes glow, ah. uh, which is kind of cool. But this is so rare, and it, and it was certainly to find one in the box on an open and all of that. It, it, it goes for a fortune uh, if you can find it. Sadly, it's not a toy that I had when I was a kid, and uh, I will probably not ever be able to afford one, but it is a neat little oddity from that period of Star Trek toys. Now, I want to keep you from getting letters. You said Mission mm-hmm. to Gamma 6. In the notes, you have Mission to Gamma 4. Oh, uh, that was my bad. That was my uh, uh, not typing the Roman numerals correctly. Okay, so it is Mission to Gamma 6. It, it is Mission to Gamma 6. Yeah, that is correct. Okay, now, I'm going to so. change the notes right now. Well, just you can so if it. you want to. I'm just thinking, you know, <laughs> I just wanted to make sure you weren't going to get any bad letters. So now, if you want to write to John, you know, just write to him and say, hey. I know we are 34 episodes into a podcast about Star Trek, but until I heard John's excitement over that toy that he does not own, and that he never owned, I never realized just how big a geek he was. Prologue. A rather large crew from the Enterprise lands on Gamma Triangulae 6 and immediately starts talking about how gorgeous this place is. It's like paradise. It's a shame to intrude, but Starfleet wants it investigated and the inhabitants contacted. We do what we're told, says Kirk. There were weird readings here a while ago that need to be checked out. This place is perfect, even at the poles. 76 degrees Fahrenheit everywhere you go. Great growing condition. Almost impossible, notes Kirk. Bones says it's like the Garden of Eden. Get used to those references. There's just one thing. A flower shoots darts at a red shirt and kills him. As we go to the opening credits. Act 1. The loss of the red shirt is not the only concern. Back on the Enterprise, Scotty says there's a problem with the potency in the antimatter pods. Always have those checked, kids. Probably nothing, but they're looking into it. May have to do with those weird readings. And this might too. Spock is picking up subsonic vibrations underground. Like under all of the ground. Quite strong, fairly regular, artificially produced. Also, there is a humanoid trailing them. Hiding, but he, she, or it is there. By the way, that hot blonde in the landing party? That's Lieutenant Landon. And she's with Chekhov. She's worried about the dead red shirt, the poisonous plant, whatever's following them. Look, she's just worried, okay? Chekhov says if she must worry about something, worry about him. They start to smooch, but Kirk tells them to knock it off. On their way to the village, Spock finds an exploding rock. Luckily, though, it only explodes when you throw it or step on it, as another red shirt will find out in a bit. Not when you just pick it up, turn it over, and break it. So that's good news for Spock. He says these rocks could be a considerable source of power. On the Enterprise, the antimatter pods have gone from slightly concerning to completely inert. And that's why you have those things checked, kids. Whatever's causing it is coming from the planet. A beam, maybe, or a transmission, coming from near the village. Bones is studying the thorns from one of the plants that killed the red shirt. Really poisonous, those. They're so engrossed that they don't see one of the poison dart-shooting plants taking aim at Kirk. Spock does, though. He yells, Jim! Shoves Kirk out of the way and gets a chest full of poison darts. They need to get Spock back to the ship, which is an issue. The Enterprise is inexplicably unable to beam up the landing party. Act 2. Hey, Spock's fine, and Kirk's mad at him. Could have got himself killed. Poison thorns don't work anymore, so the planet conjures up an electrical storm. Outright kills a red shirt. Tries to strike the rest of the party, but to no avail. Kirk hears from the advance team sent to check out the village. Totally primitive, 
and the radio craps out. Kirk and company press on to the village. A freaked-out advance man comes running back toward them, saying, It's over there! I never saw anything like it! Then he steps on an exploding rock, which explodes. He's pretty much dead. That's a lot of dead red shirts for one episode, and Kirk is seriously blaming himself. McCoy and Spock say there's nothing Kirk could have done, though he says they should have beamed out at the first sign of trouble. This mission wasn't that important. Spock says the thing trailing them is back. Kirk decides to catch it. With the distraction created, Kirk gets the drop on it. It's a big blonde guy, pompadour, skin like an Oompa Loompa, with a couple of tribal markings on his face. This is what they all look like. Very blonde, far too tan, otherwise perfect physical specimen of what looks to be humanity. This one's name is Akuda. He is the eyes of Vol. You know Vol. He is everything. He causes the rains to fall and the sun to shine. All good comes from Vol. And Akuda is the leader of the feeders of Vol. Kirk would like to speak to Vol, though Akuda says he is the only one that can do that. He is the eyes and voice of Vol. It is Vol's wish. Spock figures that must be via the antenna sticking out of Akuda's head. Oh, those. Those were given to Akuda during the dim time, so people could hear Vol and do what he says. Now let's go meet the feeders. Scotty calls down to Kirk. Something has grabbed the ship from the planet's surface. It's trying to drag it down. In the current state of disrepair, they've got 16 hours before their orbit decays and the ship breaks up. So he'll get to work on making that not happen. Now they get to Vol. Turns out he's a giant papier-mâché reptile head. I'm sorry, he's stone. Steps lead into his mouth and his eyes are glowing. Smoke or steam or something emanates from his gaping man-sized maw. And that's something to think about as we go to commercial. Act 3. Spock is impressed with Vol. Well made. Wicked old, though. This is not the center of the thing. This is just an access point. Also, it's got a force field, which Spock walks straight into. He's fine, though. Kirk would like to speak to Vol, but Akuda says Vol is sleeping. When he eats, which will be soon, Vol may speak to them then. In the meantime, come back to the village. If you're hungry, you can eat. If you're tired, you can rest. The people of Vol greet the landing party. Kirk wants to know where the children are. Akuda doesn't know what children are. Oh, you mean replacements. Don't need them. These are all the people, and all the people that are needed. In fact, children are forbidden by Vol. Lieutenant Landon wants to know what happens when a man and woman fall in love, but oh, there goes the landing party again, with words Akuda doesn't know. If you mean the holding and the touching, though, yeah, Vol has forbidden that, too. Now let's eat. Bones checks out the natives. No idea how old they are. Eh, somewhere between 20 and 20,000 years old, maybe. They're not growing old. No harmful bacteria in their bodies, no regular signs of old age. Kind of crazy, right? Dinner time for Vol. The feeders of Vol start dropping rocks down his throat. Presumably the exploding rocks that Spock said earlier could be a considerable source of power. This seems to prove Spock's hypothesis to Spock that there's no living thing down there, just a machine. Kirk decides to approach Vol, which causes Vol's eyes to glow bright and thunder to roll, which causes Kirk to change his mind about approaching Vol. Tell you what, let's try to figure out how much power this thing is expending versus how much power it needs instead. Spock and McCoy have an argument about the relationship between Vol and the feeders of Vol. Spock sees it as a marvelous example of reciprocity, while Bones sees it as slavery. There's been no change or progress here in 10,000 years. This isn't life, it's stagnation. Spock points out that the people are healthy and happy, and that holds no water with Bones. Kirk says the philosophical argument can wait until the ship is out of danger. Speaking of which, Scotty calls down to say he might be able to fix the Enterprise. And good news, if he can't, they'll die within moments of it. Back on the planet, Vol is speaking to Akuda. It shall be done, replies Akuda, though we don't know what it is yet. 
Outside the village, Chekhov and the lovely Landon have snuck off to fool around. The touching and the holding. A couple of the feeders of Vol see this and become curious. And they start with the touching and the holding. This angers Vol. Akuta says what Vol said was true. The strangers are a danger. Get the men together. I need to talk to them. Now we find out what Vol instructed. The away team has to die. Just hit them on the heads with big sticks. Like I'm going to do with this melon. Gets messy. Act 4. Spock is still bothered by the plan of action. This is a viable society. Kirk's with bones, though. They don't create. They don't produce. They don't even think. They exist to service a machine. Spock says if they do what they're going to do, they'll be in direct violation of the non-interference directive. Kirk disagrees, saying these people should have the opportunity of choice. We owe it to them to interfere. Spock isn't sure Starfleet Command would agree, but Kirk says he'll take his chances. The people of Vol, by the way, they're gone. Kirk and Spock go to talk to Vol. This angers Vol, who calls down the thunder and the lightning. Spock is hit, but he'll be okay. Back at the village, the people of Vol come to kill. One red shirt buys it, but the rest take down the people of Vol, who are then put in a hut. Spock pokes at bones. Look, the people of Vol have learned to kill, well on their way to being human. Scotty, meanwhile, has been working away at getting the Enterprise out of orbit. With 12 minutes left, they try it and pull away a tiny bit. They've gained an hour, but that's it. Kirk goes back to blaming himself. Dinner time for Vol, though the landing party will not let them go feed him. Now's their chance. Kirk orders Scotty to fire on Vol. They'll not be able to penetrate the force field, but that's not a big deal. Kirk and Spock think Vol's holding onto the Enterprise, plus having to reinforce its force field once the Enterprise starts firing, minus its crunchy energy rocks, will weaken it to the point that they'll be able to talk to it, learn about it, get it to reason. I'm kidding, they're going to kill it. Which they do. The good news, the Enterprise is free. The bad news, the people of Vol got nothing now. It was Vol who cared for us. Eh, Kirk assures them, you'll learn to care for yourselves. With our help. You'll learn to think for yourselves, build for yourselves, and work for yourselves. And what you create is yours. That's what we call freedom. You'll like it. A lot. Plus, you're going to start doing it and having kids. They have no idea what he's talking about, but they laugh anyway. Back aboard the Enterprise, Spock is still not 100% convinced that what they did was right. We've kind of given the Adams and Eves that were the people of all the apple, the knowledge of good and evil. We forced them out of the Garden of Eden. Kirk jokes that it sounds like Spock is casting Kirk as Satan. Kirk points out that Spock looks like Satan. The end. Two things here, Ken. Yeah. Uh, first of all, if yeah. they're... Uh, uh, first they're a- of all... <laughs> Look at you. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Right. That wasn't even one of the things. Was That was like a bonus no, thing. That, that was a bonus thing. All right, that was thing number one and a half. One right. A. Okay. Yeah, one A, ahead. yeah. Uh, if there are plants on a planet, Spock does not get to beam down. <laughs> because uh, there's spores. There's this thing that shoots deadly uh, little darts. I mean, he's lucky that in the cage when he was so giddy about the music-making plants that one of those didn't turn around and kill him. <laughs> you know? It's, it's very true. Yeah, that it didn't right. go hypersonic and just boil his brain out of his head. Exactly. So that's thing number one. Thing number two, Yeah, they need to get the Enterprise back to dry dock, and they need to put a button in that uh, prevents the Enterprise from a decaying orbit. Because <laughs> apparently this is an ongoing thing. The, the whole Enterprise is buttons to prevent decaying orbit. Well, apparently none of them work. Wow. <laughs> because every other episode, you get a decaying orbit. I mean, this thing is made to be in space and go to planets, and yet gravity apparently seems to be a huge problem 
uh, for the Enterprise. Dude, gravity will bring you down. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that was a friend. That was a friend's song. Actually, I mean, you know how I how I speak in song a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Sadly, that's a song that most people don't know because it was a friend of mine who. Anyway, that guy's going to be a hit right now, though. Please continue. Can we talk about the red shirts? Wow. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I actually. I, somebody, maybe it was somebody on our Facebook page. I can't remember where it came across, but somebody mm-hmm. wrote recently that it's safer to be a red shirt than any other color shirt in Starfleet. And the right. reason that they say this is because there are more red shirts than anything else. Okay. This is like those morons who tell you that it's safer to fly in a plane than it is to drive in a car. It is <laughs> statistically safer to fly in a plane than it is to drive in, drive in a car. Yeah. But if your car crashes, there is a better chance of walking away from that than if your plane crashes. Right. Okay. So while statistically it might be better to be a red shirt, it is not good to be a red shirt anywhere near Kirk. No. Yeah. No. So maybe certainly certainly not on Gamma 6. Maybe we need to parse it a bit more. This is not Gamma 6, dude. This is, uh, I can't pronounce it. Gamma 6 was your toy. Oh, right. Yeah. I can't remember where we are. Now. Oh, Gamma Trianguli. Gamma Trianguli. Yes. Yeah. You know, leave off the trianguli for savings of syllables, I suppose. Right. Yeah. 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 But it, it's kind of comical that we really we're just driving home that everybody <laughs> that is not, you know, not a major character is going to die. Yeah. When you see a landing party or an away team or whatever you want to call it, when you yeah. see a group uh, come down from the Enterprise in these numbers... Mm-hmm. Either there's a narcotic plant down on the surface that's drawing them there like a siren <laughs> song, or half of them aren't coming back. Mm-hmm. That was pretty much the way it went. What did you think of that moment where uh, Kirk asks Spock if he knows how much Starfleet has invested in him? And yeah. Spock rattles off a number. I hated it. <laughs> hated it. And that's something that happens from time to time. Or, you know, it's, uh, there was another one in, in season one. I can't remember what it was, but. Uh, Starfleet's going to get its money's worth out of you. I can't mm-hmm. remember. That might have actually been to Spock as well. Uh, it, maybe it's just, maybe Spock just cost so much that they had to reinvent money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just so they could right. figure out how much they were pouring into this, you know, Vulcan, well, half Vulcan. It, it was kind of charming, though, that even after all that good training, he totally gets stumped by the birds and the bees speech. Yeah. I left the birds and the bees speech out for time. It was kind of, eh. It yeah. bothered me. Yeah. Honestly, the whole, hey, you know, because you've, you've got the one woman on the away team and you're basically forcing her into talking about sex. That's right. Mm-hmm. I even left out a sexism thing here because it just seemed like such a wasted, like, two minutes. I mean, right. the only reason it wasn't a wasted two minutes is because uh, it is at this point that uh, Kirk is trying to figure out, and even though he hasn't said it yet, he's obviously trying to figure out, you know, okay, when I destroy their society... <laughs> Will they survive? But we'll get to that in a moment. That that would yeah. be the only reason to talk about the uh, that and the you know the I guess you could say sexism of having the cute blonde talk about sex with all the men, right? Yeah, and everybody's getting a little embarrassed by it. You know, boy, not Chekhov though. Man alive! No, wow. he has he gone said- like from you know gangly kind of cute maybe teen heartthrob to yeah, she's with me. I mean, yeah. he's he's like all kinds of handsy. Well, the wig comes off and he's ready to go. You know, now this is the first episode where he's got his own hair. And, uh, and now he's just like, he's cutting loose. So he's now he's free. ready for action. Now he is ready. And he yeah. doesn't, it does not matter if people are dropping around him left and right. No, 
No. He has a singular purpose. I'm worried about the poison plants. I'm worried about the guy dying. I'm worried about somebody following us. What are you about me? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, mean, that was a quote. That is Mm -hmm. a quote. If you have to worry Mm -hmm. about something, worry about me. Wow. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I should have left sexism talk in for this episode, but I left it out. (laughs) One thing that I do really like here is the the interplay between Scotty and Kirk. Um, Every time they get on the communicator and Scotty gives him an update, uh, first of all, it's nice to see Scotty in command. I think we get a lot more good quality Scotty stuff in this episode than than really we've gotten up until now in the in the whole run yeah um so i really liked that and uh, there's one bit kind of early on where scotty is describing what dire streets are in and um by the way it's not a music reference ken i'm stopping (laughs) you there um and uh and he says you'll have to fire me and kirk says yeah i'm gonna fire you blah 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 and the thing that i liked about that scene is that it's one of those rare moments in Star Trek where the, the two actors are playing the subtext. You know, it's a serious thing. They're going to die. Right. Um, and it, but they play it for the drama. They play it for the subtext. And it's just some really great moments. It's something that you rarely get on, yeah. on TV Trek, you know? Yeah, it's, exactly. There's, I mean, there's an understanding of this is really serious. And, you know, as you say, 400 people on the Enterprise, roughly 400 people will die. Yeah. And and Scotty has already said that. And he's like, so if I can't fix this, yeah, you're going to have to fire me. It's cute. Yeah. I mean, it's a serious moment, but is Star Trek mm-hmm. not taking itself so seriously or them? Not, I, can't, I can't think of the right words for it. But, yeah, it's cute. <laughs> I guess it's cute would be the way to say that. Yeah. Hey, uh, our producer, uh, remember him, Rod? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he pointed out uh, a parallel here to the time machine. The H.G. Wells classic, of course. Uh, no Morlocks, but I, you know, instead you've got just the machine feasting on the uh, uh, the, the goodwill of the, the people of Val. Uh, of course, in the time machine, you had the Eloi, who were the innocent, uh, uh, you know, servants <laughs> of uh, uh, of this this beast that was. Uh, uh, you know the the Morlocks and their their temple, all that kind of stuff. So I, I can see it. You know, I can see a little uh, parallel there. Similar look. Mm-hmm. Kind of, you know? I, unfortunately, I am not familiar enough with the Time Machine, which I guess is oh. terrible. I mean, I've seen one or two of the movie adaptations of it, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. I think it was actually when we got to that that I was sort of like, eh, you lost me. Oh well, excellent book. But then the the George Powell movie from the uh, uh, early '60s, I believe that mm-hmm. that's kind of the the look that I'm thinking of that applies to this to the the good people of Val. I understand Val. I understand the people of Val. I get their love for Val, and I get Kirk's discomfort with their situation. But seriously. What is up with the hair of the people of Val? Well, John, part of me is tempted to say, um, not unlike we said, I guess, last week, or the week before, we've kind of seen this episode done a couple of times a couple of ways. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's, there's certainly an element of Return of the Archons to this episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, and there's very much, very much... Return, uh, uh, I'm sorry, This Side of Paradise. Yes. In this episode. Um, why don't you begin? 
<laughs> well, yeah, it, it is very familiar territory. Uh, well, for and for two different reasons here. Um, when you're talking about uh, Return of the Archons, um, I, I like the idea that you know, again, Spock's the one who brings up the Prime Directive, and Kirk is like, mm, no, hey, just <laughs> wad it up, toss it out the window. <laughs> um, so we're we're already familiar with that. Um, as, and he also does that in uh, Taste of Armageddon. We, we actually you know? haven't identified the Prime Directive as the Prime Directive yet, though, have we? I mean, we've come close well, to calling it a Prime Directive, but oh, no, then no, no, he they, called it the Non-Interference Directive. Yeah, but it, it, we, we actually introduced the, the term Prime Directive in uh, Return of the Archons. But, but here we actually describe it as a Non-Interference Clause. But we never say that it's the Prime Directive. That's what I'm saying. It hasn't really oh, been codified yet. It's sort of like, and this was something that you pointed out in some episode, I mean, like one of the first episodes that we recorded, I think, but uh, we had Captain's Log supplementary in this episode. Really? Mm-hmm. We're going to go back and do that now? All right. <laughs> right. Other thing for the Captain's Log later in the show. Stick around. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, this side of paradise where um, <laughs> uh, that is familiar territory for you. Um, the idea that these people are... They're happy. Yeah. So why ha- shouldn't we go in and mess with them? And, and they, here's they the are healthy and they are happy. They are very healthy. Yes. Uh, and Kirk decides. They're grinning like idiots every time they go to feed Vols. So and my assumption is they're very happy too. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, Can't have that. So here, here's the thing. <laughs> I am I, going to. Well, I, th- there are two things that I'm thinking of here. First of all, there is the real and immediate danger of. The Enterprise mm-hmm. was going on with that. So yeah. there is a self-preservation element yeah. to what Kirk is doing. Yes. Although we don't really talk about that much. You know, we, we, we keep that separate from their argument um, while they're on the planet. Kirk's just like, they need to be free. They need to do this. You know, And I, I think I'm going to surprise you here by preemptively probably agreeing with what you're thinking. Kirk decides for this alien race right away mm-hmm. how they should be living. We know nothing about these people except that they serve all, that they're healthy and they're happy. Right. Um, my argument, uh, which would be different for the side of paradise, those are human beings. Those are human beings from Earth who got infected by this alien spore against their will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and there is an element of choice there that I would say, okay, well, once they're aware of the effect that it was having, of course, Sandoval, uh, was distraught at the idea that he had wasted all this time. But Hey, if you want to stay there, if you want life with the spores, go right ahead. But, but you should have that element of choice. This is an alien race we're dealing with. The only resemblance that they have to us that we know about is just their physiology they got two eyes two arms two legs we know nothing about them we know nothing about their development or their ability to do anything and uh kirk just says uh pretty much what he does at the end of uh return of the archons is like yep yeah you guys got to get new jobs now see ya yep (laughs) i bring you bibles and pants (laughs) <laughs> Again, right. it's the same. I mean, it's the same sort of thing. Uh, sure, you've been here, you've been happy, you've been healthy, but you're not making stuff. You know, you're not building things and and worrying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so please <laughs> let me let that happen for you. There's a, there's an argument that uh, Kirk makes uh, saying that these people deserve choice. Mm-hmm. They're not going to get it. 
they don't get choice. He says they deserve choice. His view is right now they have no choice because they're just serving ball and that's all they can do. Okay, now I'll grant you he's kind of right there except he is not going to, when this whole thing is over, he is not going to give them the choice. Okay, do you want to keep serving ball or do you want to, you know, maybe build right. stuff, maybe start, I, maybe start doing yeah. maybe start making babies. You know, there's yeah. all kinds of things you could do. Yeah. Let me leave that choice to you, except for the part where you can go back and live the way you were living before I got here. Right. I, I agree. I, I, I actually do agree with you on this um, because they – it would have been a different thing if that choice had been available to them. If they all got together and said, you know what, we, we kind of like the way things were going with Vol. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Well, I All hope right. you can repair him then because that kind <laughs> yeah, of right. messed him up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you throw a yeah. bunch of those energy rocks down there and see if that does anything? No? Yeah. Right. Um, it, it's kind of like uh, the thing with Khan. You know, if we come back in 20 years, uh, uh, how are they going to be doing? Well, they're going to be dead. I mean, well, they probably are. Because yeah. here's the other thing. I mean, at least with the return of the Archons, you mm-hmm. can say, well, you got a whole planet of people. So, that, you know, it's going to work out. When they get to the village. It's um, about 20 people. Right. Yeah. And, and Kirk says, where's everybody else? And, and is, yeah. eh, nobody else? What are you talking about? There's 20 of us. How many people does yeah. it take to feed Vol for crying out loud? We don't need more people. Somebody wrote to us recently, and I cannot remember who, and I cannot remember where, and I can't remember exactly what they said. And so for all of those things, I apologize. It's almost <laughs> like nobody wrote to us, except the question that was put to us was, and I can't remember if it was Landru or Nomad, but the question was, could they be the precursor to the Borg? Mm. Kirk is the precursor to the Borg. <laughs> Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated if Kirk disagrees with the way you live your life. Because that is the only hope now for these people. They pretty much have to be picked up by Starfleet and taken someplace else where they can meet and marry others. Or maybe their kids do. Because yeah. there are 20 of them. Your two options here are a planet full of 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 inbred individuals yeah. over the course of thousands of years right or you know well let's just you know go live someplace else or maybe we can turn this maybe this could be like the new rigel whichever one is the pleasure planet that people go to for vacation right because i mean otherwise there is absolutely no hope for these people just you know sailed in and killed them on uh, on, yeah. on basically you know nothing other than you know the repugnance that bones actually found because you said kirk decides immediately it's bones that decides immediately Mm -hmm. kirk decides Mm -hmm. over a commercial break apparently because (laughs) his first thought is we got to get our ship out of danger and then his second thought is no 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 they're not making anything they're not doing anything and his gigantic we call it freedom and you'll love it a lot (laughs) i mean that was actually that too was a quote or you'll like it a lot that also was a quote which was like which was crazy now I, and and forgive me because I don't have written notes because every time I tried to write about it, it, it like it made my head hurt a little bit. Mm-hmm. There are a number of things here. I mean, this could very much be an anti-communist piece, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, don't, somebody don't, else is, don't think alike. Don't. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, somebody else is. You know, somebody's giving you food, but you're not working for it. Somebody else yeah. is making sure that you're you know clothed, but you can't choose really as much as you want to. You're taken care of, but you're not really allowed to, you know, do what you want to do. Right. I mean, this is, I mean, this is, this could be looked at as, as very much a uh, pro West, 
pro-capitalism, pro-America, which there's nothing wrong with any of those things inherently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not exactly that, though, because you're dealing – I mean, you've set up a certain set of parameters around the people of all that there's yeah. no reason – there's absolutely no reason to, to preach against what they have. But I guess if you're going to look at them as you know metaphor, then you could say, okay, well, this is anti-that. Well, that, that's kind of where I was going to go with it. I mean, it, it, there are a lot of unknowns here. So we don't know how long Val has been there. We don't know how long uh, this relationship has existed. We don't know who built Val and for what purpose. So all these things we have no idea. And more importantly, we don't know what the people of Val were like before Val was there. You know, were were they actually more like us? Were they sort of uh, uh, self-determinant? Were they productive? Were they all of these things? And now this is an imposed life onto them. So well, I- if you could say all of that, then I think you'd have a stronger case for what Kirk does. I Well, I guess. Although, I mean, it's quite possible. Is it not quite possible that this was the choice that they made however many thousands of years ago? You say sure. we don't know yeah, how long yeah. Val was there, but we do know it was at least 10,000 years, I believe Spock says at one point. Right, right. There are only 20 of them left. So, I mean, maybe this was somebody setting up something so that at least some part of their society could survive. In fact, maybe they made the choice of, well, if there are so few people left, we're never actually going to be a growing society, but we can be a viable society. We can be a surviving society. Yeah. Uh, if I go ahead and do this. Yeah. So, so that's where um, maybe if we had those answers, then you could make kind of a stronger argument one way or the other. But we don't have those answers. We, we're kind of going with what we have on face value here. Now, the only other way to look at this, like you said, is as metaphor. If we are putting ourselves in the position of the people of Val and we're trying to make a statement here about, you know, blind faith and servitude and and stagnance and, and all this stuff. OK, then, I, yeah, I, I can kind of take it for that. Um, yeah, I hate when you say blind faith in a situation like this, though. I and mean, I think you use that term with Landrew as well. And the difference is we're actually dealing with something that we can see. We're dealing with something that has I mean, that that actually acts and reacts with us. Blind faith is just about every religion that we have on the planet today, maybe even every religion on the planet that we have today. And well, that it, will anger funny. people who have, you know, that faith. <laughs> but, you know, forgive me, you can't walk up to a church and suddenly have the eyes of whatever deity you're going there to worship start glowing. And you do right. have that with Val. So, I mean, right, when you right, say right. blind faith, it's actually faith because, I mean, Val actually does make it 76 and sunny every day. Yeah, well, and it was funny. I actually had that in my notes, kind of uh, blind faith was the wrong word here. You're right. Um, I had that in my notes about I'm struggling here with the difference between the idea of faith and blind faith because we, we sort of kick that around as like, well, blind faith is bad. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. Val is very much physical and there and acts and reacts upon these people. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and and I mean, I don't think people of faith would say that they have blind faith either. I think that's actually something that we impose on. Well, I mean, yeah, I, know, it, I know that I know that, you know, 
at one time I considered myself to have a personal relationship with uh, one of the many deities uh, currently circling the planet. Mm-hmm. And I did not think at the time that I had blind faith. I thought that I had faith. I don't know right. how I would characterize that now. I'm not really interested in going back and figuring out what I was like when I was 16 years old. Sure, sure. Not overly. Um, it, 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 well, and that's funny because in thinking about that regarding this episode, it, just hitting Google and, and looking up faith versus blind faith, what's funny is that the first several pages of responses are are mostly from religious websites. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, well, our faith is faith. The other stuff is blind faith. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I don't know that that's really a discussion for this episode, though, because, again, we're not talking about blind faith. I mean, we're talking about it's like, you know, do I believe in that chair? Yeah, I believe in that chair because it's sitting right there and I can sit in that chair if I want to. I can see that chair. Now, do I believe in some fantastic chair that's going to make me live forever? That's, you know, someplace else. But if I work really hard and, you know, do really well, then I'll eventually get to sit in that chair. Well, Pro- the, probably not so much. Yeah, but the, the reason that I think it does apply here, and, and maybe the, this isn't exactly the right phrasing, the, the faith versus blind faith, is that I do like this sort of uh, bent of skepticism that Star Trek has where – you know, it is most definitely not a god. Val, Val is a machine, mm-hmm. and it is a machine with a set of programming, yet these people worship it like a god. Um, and Kirk, you know, again, we could argue the, the merits of what he does and his rightness or wrongness of what he does. But what he's doing is he's, he's pulling the curtain back. He, he's showing the man behind the curtain that, that there is no god there. It's a machine, you know? Well, yes. I don't know, though. I mean, he's still... Uh, <laughs> sorry. He says that they're serving a machine as if, you know, we're not. And that kind of that kind of bothers me. I mean, there's machines and machines. There's systems and there's systems, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kirk is there saying, you know, no, this will all be about freedom and excitement. And, you know, you're just serving a machine and we'll be back after we tell you, you know, which beer to buy and which cigarettes to smoke and which potato chips to eat. Okay, oh, we're back. Good. Start building things and making things, and maybe you'll eventually end up with some form of commerce. And we'll be back after we tell you which bank to put your money in and uh, which potato chips to buy. I mean, this idea that, you know, the position from which he's preaching, yeah. and, and this is both 1960s television and as the head of a starship, I mean, all of those things, the position from which he's preaching is, again, uh, it strikes me as precarious. Let's, let's, yeah, yeah. you want to do something that's actually, I mean, this is going to be weird, maybe. You want to do something that's kind of, kind of pro-God for a sec? I, I love weird. Do it. All right. Uh, there's a New Testament sort of thing going on with Spock. <laughs> There's okay. sort of a Spock as Christ figure is what I what I actually came away with. Um, John chapter fifteen verses not you John, oh. John chapter fifteen verses uh, twelve through fourteen. Uh, Jesus says unto them as he was inclined to do. Um, this is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command. Okay, so Spock's not you know demanding you know that everybody do exactly what he says, but he 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 gives up his life for Kirk. Mm, yeah, he throws down his life for Kirk, which is yeah. I mean, it, it, every time he calls him Jim. Yeah. You know, especially in a moment of like, like, like he did in the, in um, uh, Devil in the Dark. Uh, every time he calls him Jim, we're getting real Spock there. 
I, I think love it. we're getting I the the it. unvarnished, unadorned. We're getting the you know the closest to human Spock, or the or you know who Spock is right. as, as far as his friendship and his love for uh, Kirk. Um, also, he keeps coming back to life. So, <laughs> little Christ like well, there too. I think. And, and he always has that moment where he's got to shake it off. <laughs> you, you know, he's like, "Well, no, I just I did the logical thing. Uh, you know, I was just trying to get you out of the way. I don't you love know. you. Yeah." <laughs> But I, I do love that. I, I think it's such a great little indicator for the character of Spock. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a fan of that as well. Um, there is one other thing that I think this episode might have going for it. And it mm-hmm. kind of goes back to the, I don't know if it's an anti-communist or pro-America or whatever thing. Um, as weird and kind of almost conservative as those things sound there's also a big uh there's a big flag planted here for the sexual revolution it seems to me i think we can all get behind that in terms of the message <laughs> that you're allowed to walk away with here um mm-hmm. it, it feels to me like that you know sort of this whole i mean it, there's definitely an indication that the sex that they're about to start having the people of all is going to lead to procreation but that's not necessarily the reason to do it Right. right. I mean, just, you know, doing it is yeah. reason enough to do it. Just, you know, enjoying it. It's kind of interesting that this God that was taking care of them, I know it's a machine, but this God that was taking care of them forbade procreation and mm-hmm. forbade even, you know, heavy petting or light petting for that matter. There was to be no attention paid to any of that. Yeah. Um, I guess you could argue that's because, you know, Vol's got limited resources. And if he's going to be, you know, keeping everything fine for these people, maybe he doesn't want a bunch of kids running around because, you know, that's just more to take care of and depletes his resources, maybe, or depletes his energy, maybe. I don't know why that would be the case, but I did find it kind of interesting that um, once the people of all get to throw off um, their version of God, they, you know, they get to fool around, <laughs> which is kind of weird. Yeah. Now, of course, yeah. they do also get disease and age. Right. And they better start, you know, figuring out something better than the hut because once natural weather patterns start, <laughs> yeah. the first strong wind may actually blow, you know, what they've got over. But, hey, at least they get to play around. I have an idea for a T-shirt. On the front, it would say, Kirk is coming. Look productive. And on the back it would say, or he will irreparably damage your way of life and everything in which you believe. Well, it's that time of the show again, where we get to ask each other questions. And uh, Ken, I'm going to kick things off by asking you, does this episode, The Apple, hold up? Um... Message-wise or as a production? As a production. As a production, it's a paper mache snake <laughs> that they are praying to. It's a big one, and you know, yeah. but it's not – I mean, there, there are weird things about it. I mean, the, the pompadour, the, mm-hmm. the, the orange skin. Yeah. Um, yeah, it holds up well enough. I mean, again, if you put yourself back in 1960-whatever – then, then I mean, it just I mean, going into it knowing that, yeah, that's fine. I mean, they were a little uh, heavy-handed with the how beautiful 
the place was because it really wasn't. And I'm pretty right. sure that's why they had to keep saying it. Right. Right. <laughs> because it really wasn't that pretty. The sky was, was red and there were a bunch of fake plants. And, yes. you know, that's – so they had to keep saying over and over again, oh, it's very pretty. It's very pretty. It's very pretty. I kind of wish they had gone back to um, uh, Spin and Marty's Ranch where they filmed oh. – um, Shore leave. Shore leave. Thank yeah. you. Where they filmed that one because yeah, uh, that was, was actually pretty. Yeah. Uh, harder to control, I, I guess, you know, things like lighting and sound and stuff like that. Right. When you go outside. Um, the acting is fine. The acting is actually good. I like mm-hmm. the I like the arguments between um, Spock and McCoy because mm-hmm. they reminded me of the arguments that we had for this side of paradise. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so I mean they 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 treat the subject matter really well. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, yes. Qualified yes. You're never yeah. going to fool anybody into thinking this was made last year, but if you were just <laughs> if you were just doing the words or if you were just, you know, listening to the arguments, definitely. Yeah. Um yeah, I I agree with you and um I'll I'll take it a step further to say that um you know, every now and then we'll, we'll kind of qualify our yes or no based on would you show this to somebody if you were getting them into Star Trek or, or some kind of geek logic like that. And and I think this is one of those episodes that that hits a lot of those provocative questions that you can kind of hand to someone and say, well, well, this is the kind of thing that Star Trek is about. These are the kinds of questions that Star Trek likes to ask of its viewers. So, uh, yeah, I, just purely, purely as a production, <laughs> purely as, uh, you know, giant uh, paper mache snake god yeah. and orange skinned aliens, it does not hold up. Um, but the writing, the acting, for those other reasons, I, I, I think we, we, I'm willing to cut it a little slack. Yes. Well, you know? I mean, you have to because yeah. it was made. In the 60s. We are so far. I mean, you with your Mac and the software that comes on your computer could almost make better effects. I mean, so it's so, I mean, you have to cut it slack. Yeah. yeah. As far as that goes. And once you do that, then, yes, this episode holds up. Now, I don't agree. Obviously, I don't agree with the message. I actually feel vindicated. I feel like this episode vindicates me on this side of paradise, because in this side of paradise, we had drugged up Spock. Well, everyone said he was drugged up. We had drugged up Spock saying, I'm not sure what we did was right here. But now we have stone cold, sober, Mr. Logic Spock saying, yeah, I'm really not sure what we did was right here. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, if there's a message to this episode, I disagree with it. So does the message hold up? No, but I do like the fact that they at least uh, that, that Spock was maybe given a bit more credence in his arguments. Now, I will say um, McCarthy much. Because <laughs> like at the end of this episode, when Spock's like, "Wow, so we kind of cast these people out of Eden," and yeah. Kirk's like, "Are you calling me the devil? <laughs> you look like the devil." <laughs> but seriously, you look like the devil. Shut up. <laughs> I mean, there's like, I mean, there was, there's very much a okay. You know what? You had your fun arguing with me, but guess what? I still win, and you need to be quiet now. Yeah, was kind of the like feeling a, I got at the end of the episode. Might makes right kind of thing well it's so. sort of like count the braids you know i mean that was pretty much it in the end i mean it's 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 going to be kirk's way or the um or the interstellar bypass way yeah i, I like the fact that they had the discussion 
Yeah. Because it, we, we've, we've kind of introduced the idea in previous episodes and then just like immediately ignored it. Yes. But at least this, you kind of keep coming back to it. Now, <laughs> is that We'll is talk that, about it for a while and then ignore it. And then ignore it. Right. Yes, right, right. right. Um, uh, but yeah, is there a message here and, and does it hold up? I, I don't know. If I go back to this idea that um, if we step outside of just the, the people of all being purely alien and we say this is kind of a metaphorical thing and um, and we are revealing the man behind the curtain, that kind of I, I think this is all valuable stuff. Um but I think we're always going to come up against this problem here where we, we go, oh, look, uh, Kirk is just imposing his will on these aliens that don't know any better. Well, we're uh, apparently going to come up on this during the original series, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it is kind of interesting and, you know, timeline, blah, blah, blah. It is kind of interesting that the kinds of things that Spock is worried about are things that never would have happened in later episodes. I mean, in other, in other iterations. Right, right, right. Next generation. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> right. This doesn't happen in the next generation. And of course, you know, their technology has advanced, so they have ways to study aliens and hide from them. I mean, it's really funny to me that their their orders when they get there yeah. are go and make contact with whoever lives there. Really? Should we find out something about them first? <laughs> eh. Ask them about them. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. If you have your own ideas, questions, thoughts, comments, we would love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter, all at the handle Mission Log Pod. Or you can call us on your old-timey phone, 323-522-5641. Again, that number, 323-522-5641. You can even email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. And don't forget, we have a lovely home on the internet, Mission Log Podcast. Dot com. Remember, whatever you say, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. You know, uh, the title of next week's show uh, puts me in mind of Dr. Strangelove. Oh, yeah? Do you remember George C. Scott? Of course. Gotta get me one of them doomsday machines. Yeah. Next week, the doomsday machine. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I have an idea for a bumper sticker, happiness is, a warm puppy, a sunny day, and anathema to Captain James T. Kirk. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.